0: Shabbat shalom. They, they, they woke up a little bit. You guys awake now? I mean, this whole, I don't know where, if y'all are from around here, but this whole week has just been like, it was like a week that was made for napping. You know, especially these last couple of days, it's like the barometric pressure, the rain, which we have been so thankful to receive just kind of made every day like one big perpetual yawn, you know? And I kept trying to, I actually, it was a bad thing because I discovered something that I, that I get in Israel all the time that I really love, and I went and searched for it here in, the, in Oklahoma City because I needed some iced coffee, and I found it at that place, Dunkin' Donuts. So... <laughs> Now I have a new addiction I have to deal with. But anyway, uh, we're so glad you're here. It, feels like, it just feels like Camp Yeshua has already started, and that just pumps me up. I'm uh, fired up about that. And I know that uh, most of you, uh, you know, aren't from necessarily around here, but um, Chris has been in a series the last three Saturdays kind of dealing with a very heavy subject the subject of the enemies of the church. And all God's people said, dun, dun, dun. I mean, it was intense. I mean, it was, uh, you should go watch these messages if you haven't, but just know, it's not the feel good message of the century, okay? I mean, it's not, these are hardcore realities and sometimes, you know, Chris and I were talking and I totally get it. Sometimes you just have to ask, Lord, please give me something a little lighter, Give me something a little less prophetic and in your face all the time because it's tough because there is a reality that Chris was bringing forth that we have to deal with and be aware of. And so I was a little, felt a little awkward about telling him what I wanted to preach about today because the thing that I don't want you to think is that I'm coming, this message is to somehow temper or or uh, disconnect from what, Chris shared with us in the seriousness of these things but when I asked the Lord okay Lord how do I follow that up it was very clear love your enemies I'm like okay Lord you know that's that one commandment that's that one thing that you tell us where any other time if the preacher says and God said this and you know you can say and all the church said amen But if you get up there and you say, and God said, love your enemies, you get a, (laughs) you get a mumbled, are you kidding me? So this isn't really an easy subject either, but I want to remind you of some of the things that Chris pointed out, these three enemies of the church. He started by talking to us about the devil, that we have an adversary, I love how the Greek language handles the word devil. If you understand how the Greek language works, it it takes like a preposition and puts it with another word. And the word devil literally comes from two Greek words that means to pierce through. And the first time we see it in the gospels, it's being used kind of in juxtaposition to a parable, which is someone that comes alongside us. It kind of juxtaposes how Jesus brings truth to us versus how the devil brings lies to us. The devil comes to pierce and go through you while this Messiah sends his spirit to come alongside you and to sow truth before you like a sower who sows his seed. But the reality is we have an adversary. But the, the response to that is to never forget, but we also have an advocate. We have one who, uh, has never lost a case versus the guy who's lost just about every case, but the devil's real. And we have to re, uh, deal with that. We also dealt with the enemy, our flesh, that, that ra, that fallen appetite that wages war against us. It gives us an appetite for doing things that are evil. Years ago, uh, When I was preaching at Camp Yeshua, and someone actually reminded me of this every once in a while, it'll come through and cycle again, someone will see it as a memory. But I shared a poem that I learned when I was in church camp when I was about 15, 16 years old. Two natures beat within my breast, one is evil and one is blessed. One I love and one I hate, but it's the one I feed that will dominate. I've never forgotten that, and apparently most of the kids were at that camp haven't either, because they remind me about it. But it reminds us that we have been given a new appetite for righteousness because of the Holy Spirit within us. So even though our flesh wars against us, we also have someone warring for us in our lives. Then Chris talked about our culture. And quite honestly. Nothing is as discouraging as turning on the nightly news or just modern entertainment and looking what is going on in our culture. And kids, I, I get it. I understand why you look at us old white-haired people and we just seem cranky about things all the time, am I right? It's like sometimes you're like, okay, give it a break, turn off the news. You know, for the sake of peace in your home, stop watching the news, you know, because your kids just aren't going to understand because they don't have an America to compare to like you do. And so they don't understand why we get so aggravated. Because when we grew up, it's not that the world, it's not that our nation embraced everything that Christianity believes, everything that we believe about Yeshua but at least they respected it, so much so that they didn't schedule things on Wednesday night because that was Bible study night. That was church night. They didn't schedule things on Sunday morning because that was Sunday go-to-meeting time. And they, they didn't do that. Some states even had what were called blue laws. You couldn't, uh, you couldn't buy liquor on Sunday. I, I never quite understood that one because it just seemed like you could always stock up on Saturday. But anyway, uh, it's just because of this respect... And we don't have that anymore. They, they not only don't respect our beliefs, but they are openly opposed to them. And so sometimes, you know, the kids can hear us and see us getting so frustrated about the politic and the cultural thing, and they just don't understand. And we have to be very careful to make sure they understand that while we are frustrated with our culture, we are absolutely confident in our king. And we are not afraid of what our culture is going to throw at us. I believe that with all my heart. So, all of this raises some questions. First of all, what is going on? Why all of the hatred towards those of us who believe in Yeshua and God's word? Well, let me answer that with four simple words the revelation of wrath. Paul in Romans 1 says that he is not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God to save and transform lives. But Paul does what a lot of Jewish writers do, a lot of Hebrew thinkers, that he uses juxtaposition where you compare two things. So at the end of... The, at. The, end of the middle half of that first chapter he says I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes first to the Jew and then to the Gentile for in the gospel of righteousness has been made known from faith to faith as it says and the righteous shall live by faith Paul starts off this letter to the Romans by saying, I'm not ashamed of the transforming power of the gospel. That's why he's telling his Jewish readers, you think I'm embarrassed to do ministry among the nations, among the Gentiles? Are you kidding me? I'm watching it change entire cities. They run me out because they're afraid of what I'm going to do to their pagan economy and their idol making. Paul says, I'm not ashamed. But then Paul gives a juxtaposition just as he's not ashamed of the power of the gospel we have to understand what is it that's exactly going on in this world and so he says that the that god is revealing the wrath of god from heaven and so like we you know good prophecy people we start looking for red horses and white horses and you know boogeyman and all those things we start looking everywhere except where god told us to look You see the revelation of wrath, this thing that God is revealing, it's not revealed by some catastrophic event, though some catastrophic events are caused by where the revelation of wrath is actually occurring. Listen to where he says it's actually occurring. For even though they knew God and did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their reasoning and their thinking, and senseless, their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Let me just stop and just paraphrase. What he's saying is the revelation of wrath is when you see humanity not able to think clearly. You know, one plus one was two when I was in school, and now one plus one is what, well, what do you feel that it is? There used to be male and female because that's biological science, and they're always telling me to follow the science, and every time I do, it just doesn't go where they're wanting me to go. What happened? How do you explain how educated people in a culture that has more technology than any generation before it can't do simple biological math? How, how is it that they can, they can say that the taking of an innocent life is more moral and noble than the preservation and caring for that life? He just told you. In the rejection of truth, you be, they begin to go through this process, and so this is why we see all this. Now, I'm not going to take time to read all of this. I, I, I'm going to jump down to verse 28. It says, And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God... God gave them up to a depraved mind to do those things that are not proper. People having been filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, and evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unfeeling, unmerciful, and although they know the law of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they also practice them. We have a whole culture that now thinks it's more moral to agree with people who disagree with God than to agree with God. Guys, that's the revelation of wrath. That's this thing that is happening, and it's, it's, not, it, it's something that's supposed to be for our benefit, so please hear me. Paul did not write this as a diatribe against people who have fallen into these sins. I mean, Paul is is clearly helping us understand that these are the things. Sin produces all of these things, and these things produce a culture that becomes antithetical to everything we believe. And they become aggressive towards us, and eventually they become our enemies. And it starts with this rejection of truth. So why does Paul give us this? Just because he wanted to beat up on all these people who are dealing with these types of sins? Many of these people that are in these types of sins are in them because someone sinned against them. Their whole world has been disconnected from moral truth and value and and, and love. And so what do you expect? You see, this is a revelation so that we can not only understand them, but that we can reach them. It's a revelation so that we can see that when God tells you something is going to happen, you had better believe it. Amen? I mean, if you want to look for a fulfillment of Bible prophecy, you don't have to look any further than the news. The revelation of wrath, what is happening in our culture, is exactly what God said would happen. And he didn't do it so that the church could sit around going, told you so. He didn't tell us this so that we would become self-righteous. He told us this so that it would motivate us to righteousness. And we're going to talk about that today. You see, the revelation of God's wrath isn't so that we can hate, but so that we understand why we need to love and the power of that love. Now, we get excited when we can turn to the Bible and we see the accuracy of God's revelation coming true. And that's kind of exciting, isn't it? I mean, fulfilled prophecy is, wow. Now, let me ask you a question. As excited as we may get, when we see God's word play out to be exactly true, He said, if they reject me as creator, they reject my savior. This is what's gonna happen. You're gonna see this degrading ability. They're just not even gonna be able to think right anymore. Have we seen, do we see it? Do you believe that's what we're seeing? Can I get an amen? Oh yeah. You believe that, don't you? Uh Uh-oh. Will we believe the revelation of the Messiah's cure? Will we be as passionate about the Messiah's own words telling us, okay, how do we respond? You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, say it with me, love your enemies. You didn't say it with me. But I say to you, love your enemies enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may prove yourself to be the sons of your father who is in heaven for he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous for if you love those who love you what reward will you have even the tax collectors uh, do they not do the same and if you greet only your brothers and sisters what more uh, are you doing than others even the gentiles the pagans do that Therefore, you shall be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You see, it's easy to get all puffed up and, 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 and proud when we see that other fulfillment of prophecy or a passage of Scripture, but are we as passionate? Will we be as passionate? Will we believe him when he tells us that the correct answer to that revelation of wrath is a revelation of love flowing through our lives. We pray with me? Abba Father, in these few moments that we have to share together today, would you shine your face upon us? Would you give us a spirit of wisdom and understanding? Would you remind us of how much grace and love we have received? and understand the very thing we have received is the power we have to share. Bless us in this time, Father. Heal hearts, clear minds, and call us to do your righteousness by loving our enemies. In Yeshua's name I pray, amen. This is also a difficult passage to preach because I've got some people in my life that haven't been so great to me, like you do. I can sit right where you're seated and hear the preacher talking about love your enemies, and again, I can sit there and go, "Mm mm-hmm, yeah. In in print and in word, that, that all sounds right. I agree that Jesus said that. And that's as far as it goes. But agreeing that Jesus said it isn't the same thing as agreeing that I ought to do it. That's a different thing. But listen to what he says. He says, our righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees or you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. And when he calls us to love our enemies, he says, so that you may be uh, sons and children of your father who is in heaven. Man, th- those two words, so that, that's That's terrifying. Because he's saying this is the thing that actually manifests whether or not you are truly a child of God, whether or not you are truly a son of the kingdom of God, is if you, not just that you are agreeing that Jesus said it, but you're agreeing that that's the way I'm gonna live it. And that's two different things. But what would happen, and this is the question I want to pose to you today, what would happen if we decided to believe as much in Yeshua's strategy for dealing with our enemies as we believed the prophetic revelation that we will have our enemies? I mean, wouldn't that be transformational, not only in our lives, but in the culture? I can tell you two things that would happen for sure. It would change some of them into our allies and our brothers in the Messiah. A revelation of love through us to them would be the thing that would reach those hearts which are reachable. But the second thing that would for sure happen is that it would change us. It would change us from the inside out. So today I want to look at what Yeshua told us to do and maybe try to get a better handle on why loving our enemies is so important for us because I do think it's a truth that will change our lives. Now, I want to begin with this little rhyme. And you can write it down or you can forget it. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't matter to me. But this is what came to my mind. 1-8 on hate. 1-8 on hate. What am I talking about? When you go to the Sermon on the Mount, there are two blessings. You know, Jesus begins to preach, you know, uh, the, start the Sermon on the Mount with what we call the Beatitudes, But there are two Beatitudes that have the same result. You know, these are blessings, but the blessings are actually prophetic promises of what's going to happen. Listen to the very first one, number one. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now listen to number eight. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Did you notice that? Both of those share the same prophetic destiny. And when I say that, a prophetic destiny doesn't mean something that's just in the future because he is saying they, the kingdom will be theirs now, not just later. We're going to deal with that some more. But first let's understand what Yeshua means when he promises theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Notice he doesn't say theirs will be, future tense. Because the minute we hear kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, we, we instantly go to that eschatological, the return of Christ, the resurrection of the saints, the eternal, you know, the millennium kingdom of Messiah. But that's not really when Yeshua uses the term, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, that's not really how he's using it. About nine times out of ten, he's actually talking about how the power of the kingdom of God has drawn near to us so we can draw near to it and we can begin to experience the manifest power of God's kingdom in our lives right now. How many of you would like to experience some manifest power of the kingdom of God in your life right now? Or maybe you're just just willing to wait. Well, if you're just willing to wait, maybe your faith is stronger than mine. Because I need it now. Why? Because my enemies aren't going to wait. I need the kingdom power of God now in my life if I'm going to know how to deal with all this that is coming at at me. So who does Jesus promise the kingdom presence and its power to? Well, let's answer that in light of what Jesus describes uh, this this three-part assault that our enemies put on us, beginning in Matthew 10, Matthew 5, verses 10 through 12. He says, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets before you. Jesus lists three ways that our enemies attack us. And his answer to how we deal with them, say it with me, love your enemies. If it works out for you. No, what do he say? Love your enemies. So let's look at how our enemies come after us. The first one is, love your enemies... When they insult you, (laughs) wait a minute. When someone insults me, they are not attempting to provoke my heart to love them. Amen? But you see, our mind is not like their mind. We have the mind of Christ. So here's why you should love them for their insults. First, understand exactly what they're trying to do. When they insult you, what does an insult do? Why why do our enemies insult us? I mean, what did we learn when we were a kid? Sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me? Someone should be dug up and slapped for that one. I mean, okay, yes, I mean, I like like the intent that, that we can overcome people's words, but words do hurt. If words couldn't hurt us, our enemies wouldn't use them. So why do they hurl hurtful words at us in the first place? Well, the answer comes in knowing the meaning of this Greek word because it doesn't just mean to, to you know say something mean. It is something that is said, now listen to this, to disgrace you, to shame you, but ultimately to disgrace you. Why would they want to do that? This attack speaks loudly to the flesh because we want to fit in. We we want to be liked. That means we want the favor and grace of the culture and the world and the people with which we interact every day. And one of the ways they try to control us is by disgracing us which means separating us from the favor of our culture, separating from us from the favor of our families, putting us in a light where we no longer see ourselves the way God sees us. We start looking at ourselves the way they see us. They disgrace us. Maybe it's easier to say they try to separate us from grace. an insult that is hurled at the soul is attempting to make it long for the favor and grace of the one who is insulting us because ultimately they're only insulting us because we're not doing things or thinking things or acting the way they want us to. And they think, well, if I disgrace them, if they see that their behavior makes them the outcast, then maybe I can get them to change their behavior. Man, I would like to say the body of Christ across the board has done a great job of not giving into that. But in fact, it's just the opposite. We turn and try to curry favor with the world at every turn. We try to look like them, talk like them, act like them, and we don't even begin to think about keeping our children away from certain things they're doing. Because poor Johnny might feel like an outcast. That's shame. They're trying to separate us from grace. And Christ's answer, love your enemies. Why? Why? Well, first of all, if I'm living a life in pursuit of righteousness, and by that I do not mean self-absorbed self-righteousness, the world doesn't need me to constantly remind them how wrong they are. They need me to be a revelation of how good my heavenly Father is. That's not to say you don't have to call sin, sin, but you know, pretty much most people know what sin is. And if they've embraced it, they, they, they've already changed the definition in their own mind. But if I'm genuinely living my life to seek and please my Savior because of his grace lavished on me, then their insults, their attempt to disgrace me serves as evidence that I am grace favored by my Father who is in heaven. Come on. Did you hear that? Their insult becomes a fulfilled prophecy reminding me that their disgrace only reveals that I'm standing in grace. So bring it. Take your best shot. What would happen if every time someone insulted us and tried to shame us, we looked at them and said, thank you. (laughs) God love you. I needed someone to remind me today who I really am. I'm I'm not trying to, no, no, so you don't understand. When you disgrace me, God graces me all the more. So what if we just learned to love them? What if we stopped their insult from going into the depths of our heart and soul because our heart and soul and mind are already filled with his grace and you can't diss his grace What did Paul say? What will separate me from the love of Christ? Not you. Not your well-worded insult. Not your flowery, profane words. I mean, you know some people can really cuss good. You know? There's an art to it. And man, they can string it together and just make you, I mean, wow. Wow. I had a man come up to me one time in Jerusalem when we were doing ministry. And at first he was real polite. And then he walked away and he came back and he said, Excuse me, pardon me. And I said, Yeah, what? He said, A whole lot of things I can't repeat. But first he said, Nothing personal, but. And I looked at him, I said, None taken. Thank you. What would happen if we just love them and let their insults be the thing that increases our grace instead of decreasing it? Now let's look back at the 1-8. Jesus' first blessings for those who are poor in spirit in Hebrew, that phrase would be anye ruach, but Greek, the Greek word used to describe it has the idea of someone who is cowering down, someone that is so broken, so without their own strength, like a beggar who is totally dependent on someone's righteousness, their charity, their grace, because if someone doesn't step up, they're not going to eat. That. That, that's the type of anye ruach, that's the kind of poor in spirit that jesus is talking about because what it means is it is someone that recognizes they are absolutely dependent on god they are absolutely dependent on the spirit of god the poor in spirit are those who are so dependent on god that they find their grace and their provision from god why should we love those who insult us because they force me to remember where my grace comes from. Because they force me to remember that I am completely dependent on who he is and who I am is determined not by what they say about me, but by the truth that he says about me. He says, I will put my name on them. You see, when they're, dis- when they're trying to disgrace you, they're trying to shame your name. And they need to understand, I don't stand here in the power of my name. I've got nothing, but in him I have everything. They can't take anything from you. And in that sense, the words don't have to hurt if we love them enough to let them remind us of who we really are. Man, when I was a teenager, one of my favorite verses, 1 John 3, 1, how great a love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God that we should be called the children of God. So go ahead and call out your insults. God has already called out my blessing, and he knows me by name. Now I've got a sidebar here for a moment to talk about grace. You know, you guys know that in the Old Testament, hesed is the loving kindness of God. So really when we're talking about grace, we're also always talking about love. In the New Testament, the Greek word karos is the word that we translate as grace, and we really focus on the definition of unmerited favor. And all my life, the emphasis on God's grace has been on what I do not deserve. But that's actually his mercy. And mercy is a manifestation of grace. I don't deserve to be forgiven. But I'm going to tell you something today, and I I may get tossed out. Um, I don't deserve his mercy, but I do deserve his grace. Like What? Wait. Brent, that's not, no, we don't say it like that. Well, that's the problem. Because we've spent our entire history focusing on I'm just a sinner saved by grace. And a lot of people never get beyond that. That's the definition. They of themselves forever. I was a sinner saved by grace. I am now a saint empowered by grace. And I do deserve his love. Why? Not because of me, because I'm his child. And what parent in here right now would tell your children, I'm not going to love you until you deserve it. Grace was never supposed to take our focus off of the goodness of God and put it on the patheticness of us. Come on. I'm saved by grace because he is a loving, kind, good God, and because I'm his child, thank God I deserve it because he wants to deliver it. Now, I don't earn it. I don't have to earn it. I'm his child, and he delights to give it. Saved by grace was never supposed to keep us imprisoned, taking our, taking our self-esteem to a place where we, we spend so much time looking at how unworthy we are that we stop focusing on what he has given. Well, I got to move on. When I was in Bible college, we had a Wednesday night program called Family Reunion. And the dean of the students a man named David Roadcup uh, would preach. And at the end of the night, David had this kind of way of talking. But he'd, he'd raise his hand. He just, he just had this, he wanted to say something just really special. You know, he wanted us, he wanted us to hear it. And he'd say, I just, I just really want you, I just, I just want you to know, God has no negative thoughts about you. He said it every Wednesday night, and I love that we kind of sang that today because that's the truth. The world may have negative thoughts about us. They may try to disgrace us. God is just lavishly pouring out his love upon us. Amen? Number two, when your enemies, when should we love our enemies? When our enemies persecute us. You see, when our enemies hurl insults at us, it's an attempt to disconnect us from God's grace from the inside out. They're, they're trying to sow a lie within us that will change the way we live. And so it's, it's kind of an inside out kind of a assault. But when that doesn't work and they can't get us to conform to their ways, they will go so far to render us powerless from the outside with actual assaults on our freedom or on our person or on our finances or on our place in society. They will, they will do actual things to physically harm us in some way. But the purpose is to disconnect us so that we are put in a place where we feel powerless. But the Bible is filled with stories of those who were physically persecuted because of the righteousness of God. Joseph and Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego going on and on and on. And all of those stories have one common theme. They survive because of the grace and love of God. We spend so much time worrying about the persecution of the tribulation that we forget that revelation was also to teach us about the power of our triumph in tri- tribulation. It wasn't about how bad we get beat up. It's about how amazing we stand. You know, when we were singing the the blessing song today, and we get to that chorus, amen, every second time when we would sing amen, I would would sing, here I stand. Try it. Because that's what amen means. This is where I stand. I stand in the blessing of God. I stand in what God has said about me. Now listen to what Paul says in a very strange verse in chapter 5 verses 10 through 12 of Romans. The law came in so that offense, sin would increase. Wait, what? But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as, so that as in As sin reigned in death, so also grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul explains that the Torah was given to instruct people in righteousness, but the minute that instruction was given, it provoked the flesh to do just the opposite. Now we're all frustrated by the exponential rise of evil in our culture and our world. One of the reasons we don't like it is because the more sin increases in the world, the more we become the target of their animosity. Have you, ever, have, you, have you noticed that little parallel? The more sin increases, the more we fall out of their favor. But where sin increases, grace increases all the more. Why should I love my enemy? Because their love of evil exponentially increases the grace I walk in. Did you hear me? Their love of evil and sin, as sin increases in the world, grace increases in the body of Messiah. Now I've got to go off on grace again because there's another thing we we need to clarify. Grace isn't just about being forgiven because I don't deserve it. Grace is the power given to me by the presence of the Holy Spirit in my life who gives me gifts of grace. Have you ever heard the term charismatic Kairos is the first part of that. Charismatic simply means gifts of grace. And Paul is teaching us that believers filled with the Holy Spirit are empowered by that spirit. And where sin increases, what does God's grace do? It increases all the more. It supersedes it. Now, if that weren't true, their sin and their persecution could really begin to get me down and it does but what would happen if i began to realize their increase of sinfulness is just resulting in a greater manifestation of his righteousness in my life now now look at me you believe about the revelation of wrath right yeah you believe it's happening well, what about those prophecies that say in the last days, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh? Your sons, your daughters, your old men, your women. (laughs) What if we started realizing that their persecution only means a greater opportunity for God's grace? I'm telling you, in that moment... when those stones were hitting Stephen. There has never been a more powerful pouring out of grace power. He looked up and he saw heaven opened. Now, quite honestly, I don't wanna have to have people throwing rocks at me to see heaven opened. But if that day comes, I want my face lifted high. Another thing that came to me today, this freebie. We spend too much time with our heads down. Do you know, does anybody here love to be around sour pusses all along? You know. Oh, Lord, make your face shine upon me. Okay, look up. You, you ever been, been in a really ice cold room and you go outside in the warmth? What do you want to do? I can even feel the lights. Can I ask you a question? Does God ever see you smile at him? I mean, do you ever just look to the heavens and go, you're so good. You see, I think we would probably be a stronger, more empowered people if we would look to heaven and smile and tell him how great he is instead of saying, I'm so undeserving. It's true. You are. But he delights to love you anyway. Lift your face. When Ephraim comes in a little bit to give us the blessing, lift your face. Feel the warmth and love of God. Okay, so I've got five minutes to do the last point. <laughs> Let me just tell you this before I move on. The adversary cannot put more on you than Jesus can pour out in you. Okay? The adversary can't put anything more on you than our advocate can pour in you and through you and upon you. Don't give the devil more than is due. Number three, when should we love our enemies? When they speak falsely all manner of evil against us. You know, sometimes the more extreme the accusation and ludicrous the accusation, the more clear truth becomes. You know, the more they try to, uh, after the Roe v. Wade thing, when they they literally came out and they started saying that uh, crisis pregnancy centers were evil. no one has to go to a crisis pregnancy center if they don't want to. They're not kidnapped and taken to those places. They they go because they need help. They, They don't want to take the life of their baby. I mean, doesn't truth get really, really clear when the accusation gets more and more ludicrous? That trying to save a life is immoral and trying to take a life is moral? You know, sometimes when they speak falsely and they lie about us, that they're they're just doing what Jesus says they're prone to do because their father is the father of lies. But our father is the father of truth. Jesus said, don't be surprised when they spread lies about you and hate you. They did the same to me. They did the same to the prophets. You see, it's not their lies that should scare us. It, it, it's 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 not the words they say that should should terrify us. Something far worse could be happening. Their silence. They only speak against those they see as a threat. And if the church has gotten so comfortable and so worldly, that's what they want. They're fine if we keep going to church, as long as we preach their gospel. It's not their accusations that should scare us. It's when we don't live a life of righteousness. And again, I'm not talking about self-righteousness. I'm not talking about condemnation and judgment. I'm talking about a pursuit of righteousness. Righteousness. I'm talking about a lifestyle where they're pursuing us because we're pursuing him. Because we're pursuing the kingdom of God and his righteousness. You know, there's a lot of people that like to bash the church and tell us the problem is we're just, you know, we're just hypocrites. We're just not Christ-like enough. And if we would just be more Christ-like then they would like us. But on what day of Jesus' life did he ever lay his head down at the end of the day and go, "Man"? I wish I'd just been more Christ-like today. Maybe I should have healed a few more people. Maybe maybe I should have cast a few more demons out. Did Jesus ever fail to be Christ-like? What did they do to him? They killed him. If they did it to him, don't be surprised that they want to do the same to you, whether it's with their words or their actions. So let's just wrap up. Jesus goes on and he says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Guys, remember the 1-8. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. God has promised us with all of their insults and all of their assaults and all of their attacks at ever-increasing levels, God's manifest love and grace is going to be measured to us exponentially higher. We have everything we need for love and godliness. The question is, when they come after me and when they insult me, will I reveal the love of Jesus to them? You see, you're supposed to be and I'm supposed to be the revelation of righteousness, the revelation of God's power, the revelation of God's love. So when they're living in wrath, let us manifest his love in righteousness. Jesus said it, say it with me, love your enemies.